I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to This Week in Oil and Gas. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. We are now teenagers, Mr. LaCour. This is episode 13. Yeah, so I uh, have my first glass of wine to celebrate. Although for teenagers, doesn't that mean it's illegal? It, it, it would be illegal, but let's not talk about what, what we were actually doing when we were 13. All right, folks, I am from a company called Tribe. I almost said Modal Point. That's you, Mark. I'm from Tribe Rocket. We are brand architects for next-generation oil field leaders. That just means we build brands and make people a lot of money. What about you, Mark? Yeah, modalpoint.com. We are the oil and gas sales experts. Absolutely. True research in oil and gas. Um, the brains in the operation, Mr. LaCour, is. So we will jump right in. With Saudi Arabia, partners turned down Chinese requests for extra oil. That, that seemed like a pretty catchy headline to me. So what's going on here? Yeah, so what a lot of people don't realize is Saudi Arabia exports a lot of crude, but they import a lot of refined products. So they don't refine, up until recently, they don't refine their own gasoline. They export crude and they buy gasoline from somewhere else. Same way jet fuel, diesel, ethylene, all the refined products. Well, in the last couple of years, um, Saudi Aramco has built refineries. Now, because they've built refineries, they now have their own refining capacity to feed their own internal needs. And their highest demand is in the summer. Think about all the air conditioners you have to have if you live in the desert. Right. So what happened is they're, with what they're exporting, what's left is meeting their needs. So they have nothing left over to give to China uh, who, who needs more crude. And you know, if anybody's been listening to the show for a while, it's, um, China is the largest consumer of crude in the world. It passed up the U.S. about uh, 18 months ago. So now China's have to figure out where they get the extra crude that it needs. So yeah, the refusals come week after, after veteran Saudi oil minister Ali al Nami's apologies to all of our listeners in the Middle East, um, visited Asia and said demand uh, for its oil was strong, but that Saudi Arabia's record oil output of over 10 million barrels of oil per day was ready uh, was ready to meet the needs of its clients. So they're just, again, kind of what you just said, hey, man, we're maxed out. Yep. Yeah. And so this is going to force China to buy oil from other places. Probably Russia is going to play a part of that, but also China has its eyes on Africa. So um, uh, the nationalized oil companies in China um, have a lot of investment, a lot of partnering uh, in Africa. And I suspect they'll start bringing those um, reserves online to start start meeting their needs. Okay, staying in the Middle East, we have Dubai's Enoch makes 3.6 billion pounds. So that's four or more um, billion U.S. dollar takeover offer for Dragon Oil. What's going on here? Yeah, so you know we've talked a bunch about the the merger and acquisitions are happening. This is just another prime example. So uh, Dragon Oil, uh, Dragon Oil is um, has a lot of good um, oil producing reservoirs uh, in the Turkey area, Turkish area of the world. And uh, Enoch actually several times in the last, say, six or seven years has invested money. And basically what they've been doing is hedging the risk. So they invest money into another oil company hoping they can find reservoirs and they pay attention to what recoverable oil there is. And they do the math and at the right time they buy it. (laughs) And that's what's going on here. So um, um, Dragon has a lot of proven reserves, a lot of high-quality reserves out there. Their value has been devalued because of low price of crude. So somebody like Enoch, who has a lot of cash, is the perfect time to pick them up, and that's what happened. Now, it says here that that Dragon stands to benefit significantly from being part of Enoch's platform. Yeah, can, the, you, can you unpack a, uh, that a little? 
Yeah, Enoch's an integrated oil company, which is what we call a super major. So that means that Enoch was just an, up, an upstream company. I mean, not Enoch. Um, Dragon was just an upstream company. Enoch has refineries and pipelines besides being upstream. So so now there could be a, a, a part of an integrated company or super major that does both upstream, midstream, and downstream. So is that the definition then of a super major, someone who does all three streams? Yep. It, and there's only five of them in the world, right? There's Exxon, there's Total, there's BP, there's Chevron, and there's Shell. The other super majors are combined or integrated, whatever word you want to use, are nationalized oil companies. So there's only five free market ones in the world. Wow. Okay. All right. I learned something new every day, even on the 13th show. Crude oil from Seeking Alpha here. We have crude oil. Oh, my goodness. Don't get suckered into buying this dip. Oil has further to fall. Uh, so, all right. Let's go. Yeah, so, you know, we don't agree with this. There, there's some good conclusions here. There's some good math talking about the discrepancy between different storage, between different geographic regions of the U.S., but there's also some stuff this guy missed, um, such as how quickly you can ramp up production in a frack field, such as we can't refine the, own, the sweet crudes that we um, are producing in this country. So, you know, like we said this before, we say it again, we think the worst is over and we're on a ride straight up. All right, so so – Let's unpack that a little bit more about about what he missed. And in, in, so you just mentioned about not being not refining what we, what we have in the ramp up. Talk about that. Yeah. So um, our refineries are set up to refine heavy or sour crude, like from the Middle East. Um, our frack fields are producing sweet or light crude, which our refineries are not set up to refine. So in order to refine, we have to mix the sweet crude with some heavy crude, and that's called blending. And right now, the uh, pipeline companies are doing that, which is new for pipelines. So if you're the Chevron Pasigula, Mississippi refinery, you go to your pipeline supplier and say, here's the mix that I want delivered to me, and they mix it in the pipe. That's the reason that Keystone is so important that nobody understands is that we need that heavy Canadian crude so that we can blend it with our sweet crude so can, we can refine it. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And then when we were at the API luncheon last week or whenever that was, everything's blending together nowadays, but uh, it was um, Mayor Bill White, he, he, made, he just said this one little line about converting source rock to sediment. Is, the, is he talking about fracking when he says that? Would it, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I, I thought so, but uh, that was a really fascinating way to say it that I actually have never heard before. Yeah, he was he was a very good speaker. I enjoyed that presentation very much. Yeah, he nailed it. He was giving he was definitely giving the straight truth. I appreciated that. All right. Well, so now we we got we got some more contrarian contrarian thinking that we I'm guessing we disagree with. At least it seems silly to me. Cheap oil's unexpected harm to the U.S. economy. Yeah. So um, there's two parts to this. So first thing, I don't 100% agree with this article. There, ha the the U.S. economy is moving forward, is growing, and it's growing predominantly because of what the oil and gas industry has done in the last three years. Now, it's not growing as fast as I thought it would, and that's what this article is about. You know, back when we did our prediction, back in uh, November of 2014, we did our predictions of 2015, one of the things we predicted is our economy would be on a roar from all this cheap fuel, right? We predicted that the airlines would have price battles over tickets again, that people would drive more, um, that um, more manufacturing jobs would come back to the U.S., 
And we were half right. All that stuff has happened, but only about half of, the, of, of what we thought was going to happen. I mean, there's a bunch of reasons for that. And I think a, a lot of it is just cultural, right? People don't want or need to drive as much anymore. Uh, young people aren't as excited about getting their driver's license. Um, you know, the manufacturing jobs in certain parts of the country are just, I mean, certain parts of the world are just rock solid. And you don't want to forklift that even if you can save a few dollars. So, um, but this, um, you know, just based on the headlines of this article, it's, it's from the LA Times, and there's a bit misleading. Yeah, interesting comment just pops up on the side here. The author is confused by short-term and long-term effects. In the short-term, lower energy prices will cause some pain and dislocation, and the long-term, lower energy prices will strengthen the economy. Um, and then there's some stuff about renewals. <laughs> um, but the, but so um, what do you think about that short-term, long-term paradigm? That they don't know the oil and gas industry. Yeah, they, 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 you know, th this is a reporter looking at numbers and making assumptions, and um, th they don't understand that this industry is a long-term play. Trust me, when Exxon is developing a field that has a lifetime of 30, 40, 50 years, and they do the financial models, they do some very long-term forecasting. They know what they're doing. Absolutely. So, what is Kemp talking about here in Reuters when he says, "How do you lose a hundred million barrels of oil?" So when, if you think about, if, if, if you wanted to see what the world's crude production was, let's say yesterday, and somebody gave you a report, think about where that data came from. So in the U.S., the federal government requires all oil productions logged accurately. So our production numbers are really good. In Europe, there is no federal law like that. So each country in Europe has its own uh, municipal or own organizations that report how much crude is produced. And then you get to countries like Russia and China who either lie <laughs> about what they're doing or they have no way to accurately track. Russia or China lying? Come on. Yeah. And so you put a lot together, and, and when you look at world oil forecasts, there's some variables in there. And this, this article is about the, a variable of 100 million barrels of oil, which sounds like a lot, um, but it's, it's something that all of the financial modelers that, are, that actually know oil and gas know how to mitigate that risk of, of not knowing exactly how much is being produced. So, is that, so it sounds like what you're saying then is, is that this is a, 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 a news story about some kind of, it's, it's kind of funny. It reminds me of the whole quote unquote deflate gate uh, situation where all the players are like, yeah, of, of course everyone cheats. Come on, <laughs> it's gamesmanship. Um, and so this is maybe something that people within the industry understand and maybe not so much uh, out of the industry. Yep, you're exactly right. This is an article about helping people invest in, in oil stocks. And it's one of those things that you need to know. If you, and if you don't understand how the oil and gas industry works, you probably shouldn't be investing in their stocks. Yeah, touche. U.S. shale, uh, shale gale, all right, seeking alpha again, a whale of a tail and Permian walkabout, anything that says Permian I'm interested in. What are we talking about here? So I, I've had some coaching here. i got to make sure I say shale instead of shell, right? Thank you. So yeah. So what we're actually talking about is that, is, and, and we've talked about this before, is there's some key players in the North American shale plays that are really good at what they're doing. Um, you know, people like... Um, Concha Reserve, Pioneer Natural Resources, you know, Oxy, XTO, these guys know what they're doing. And so they're ready, they're poised, waiting for the price of crude to get to whatever the magic number is to increase production. Um, and then at, on the flip side of that, you have just the opposite. You have people that don't really understand um, how to be profitable in these fields, and they're in a bad place. And so they're hurting right now. Um, but the Permian is just such a good reservoir. It's, it's going to be the majority of the oil produced in this country for at least the next 10 or 15 years. So I haven't heard much about the Klein Shale lately. What's going on? I mean, that's out in the Permian Basin, right? 
Yeah, it's um, you know, we we throw around the word shale like like the Permian is is equal from one end to another. It's not. There's different areas of Permian that are much more profitable, much much better reserves, much easier to frack than other areas. That's why you know we know there's going to be new technologies brought on board. Because I mean, everybody's looking at this and has been looking at this. You know, how do you get those marginal fields to produce more? Uh, we actually did a blog post uh, a week or two or three ago about how some of these shell um, producers are actually going to Silicon Valley, and and it was like, literally I think the title of the the post was um, um, North Dakota meets Silicon Valley, and they're going out there and they're looking for new technologies to help take these marginal plays and actually make them higher, higher producing plays, which, which is cool. I mean, it just benefits everybody. And that's, that's something to, to throw in always a plug for drilling info, because I've heard Alan Gilmer give a speech a few different times and it's fascinating, uh, about a particular study they did in the Eagleford where, where they went through and they graded all of the acreage from A to F or D or whatever it was. And it was really fascinating the way that a company like EOG that knows how to do it is, they will get they will get more oil out of out of degrade acreage than anyone just because they know how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And something else this article touches on, um, which I need to bring up is um, this an article touches on lifting the crude export ban. And so and I was more surprised than anybody Monday of this week. There was a bipartisan um, um, action by Congress to lift the export ban. That means both the Democrats and Republicans worked on it together. And I was like, oh my God, I, Wait, I, I want this what, to happen. What? What? I that it happened, but I never thought it'd be a bipartisan event. So, you know, hats off to my Democrat brothers out there who <laughs> see the benefit of helping lift that oil ban to help the U.S. economy. So, you know, good job, Congress. Well, and then the the, the line that's jumping out at me here, the, the EU seriously wants the U.S. ban lifted as well. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to fall over from shock from everything I'm learning right now. Yeah, so um, Russia has a chokehold on Europe, right? They, they deliver the natural gas that Europe needs to survive. So a couple of things are going on. If we lift our export ban, um, then that's going to help Europe a lot. and It's going to lessen Russia's chokehold. And since we're talking politics, which I try never to do, you might have noticed in the news that President Obama approved Arctic drilling. And you think, okay, he won't approve Keystone. Why the heck would he approve Arctic drilling? Think about it. It's actually an extremely smart move. I had to do a little bit of research and thinking about it myself. By by making sure that we can drill for gas, especially in the Arctic, safely and environmentally friendly, we can now give that straight to Europe. And Russia just has no place for it to sell its oil and gas. So you know that was a very strategic move by the the current administration, and I applaud them for doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, give credit where it's due. This next one is hilarious to me because uh, what we were talking about last week in terms of oil spills and all these things, advocacy group, wind turbine rules need to protect birds. I mean, come on, people. Can we make a decision, right? These are the same people that are out there in their polypropylene kayaks, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's like, so when I read this, it's like, are you kidding me? At what point do you say basic human needs are more important than some minnow or some bird getting sliced in half by a windmill. And I'm not joking about the windmill slicing birds in half. Well, okay, maybe I am. But, right. you know, it's um, wind energy is a very viable form of energy. And for any of our listeners that are outside the state of Texas, James, which state has the high, is the largest wind producer of energy? Well, I think you know that's the great state of Texas. 
Yep, most people would not know that. We produce more wind energy than anybody. So, um, you know, I've seen the studies. I've seen the percentages. My degree is actually in wildlife management. Go figure. The impact that these windmills are making on wildlife is negligible. I mean negligible. So why even start down this road, people? Right, right. But they, they've got to find another reason that their that they're Western civilized, modern, prosperous life <laughs> um, just just should not continue. I I would I would like it if they would just get off the grid, um, and until they do, let's move on. Uh, yeah. Because this last one here, it, it, it's uh, it's just kind of it, it kind of made me laugh. Oil field money. What can you do with it? Yeah. So the highest paid job out of college in the U.S. right now is petroleum engineering, and, and the average is like one hundred twenty three thousand to start. That's good money. This is an article that that grouped different professions in the oil and gas industry, and it ranges from you know one hundred twenty some odd thousand dollars down to 70 some odd thousand, all of which are good incomes. But then the, the author gets, it's, it's actually hilarious. He gets into what can you buy with all this money? <laughs> and so I didn't realize this, but he starts off with exotic kittens. You can buy a leopard or a tiger. So if you work in an oil field and you make good money and you want a leopard, go get him one. And then he moves to fancy cars. And actually my, my dream car is sitting there, 911 GTR from Porsche. And he, and he goes through cars and he goes through luxury tree houses and water jet packs. And so the thing that I walked away from this article with besides a smile on my face is, you know what? When you work in the oil and gas industry, you're pretty well off. Um, and, and, and I'm not bragging, but it's, it's, you know, if there's so many people out there that are struggling to make ends meet and there's a lot of people out there that talk about wealth inequality, come work in the oil patch. And yeah. All that stuff goes away. Yeah. There is no such thing as the 1%. This is America. This is America. And anyone can do anything they choose, including – our friend in Boulder, Colorado, our weekly onion, five or six dudes jump out of nowhere and just start wailing on this one guy. <laughs> um, so, yeah, a little ridiculousness from the onion in there. But while we still have time, let's talk about what's coming up next week in terms of events. And so uh, let's let's look at the calendar. So we have uh, oil and gas mobility Houston. What's that all about? It's a it's a it's a Tuesday through Thursday. Yeah, that's that's a good event. So what it's the oil and gas industry is sometimes a bit, shall we say, old fashioned. And so this is a conference about mobility, um, stuff that the rest of the world has been doing for years is just new to oil and gas. Things like um, being able to to do real time reporting on an iPad, right? How do you get connectivity offshore? Um, you know, how do you, how do you build GUIs that are that you can use while What's you have gloves on? What's a GUI? G- uh, GUI graphical interface. There you go. All right, and and so and so there'll be uh, several different mobile vendors there, I guess. Oh, it, there'll be more than several. This is a pre- this is going to be a pretty big event. They'll they'll probably be, I would guess, it'll probably be fifteen to twenty thousand people show up there, and they'll be they'll have a whole expo floor. Oh wow! So where is it? Lo- where is it at? You know, James, I have no idea. <laughs> I put you on the it's spot. It's here somewhere. You you can talk to me about what Noble Energy did off the coast of Cyprus, but when it comes to this stuff, no, I'll put it in the show notes. Um. Let's see here. Uh, I actually have it right in front of me. It's at the Crown Plaza Houston Gallery area. Perfect. Right up the street. I'll go and see if I can get a press pass. Um, all right. Also, Subsea Processing and Flow Assurance Conference. What the heck does that mean? Yeah. So when you think about the subsea environment, most people think either blowout preventers or trees. But what happens when you go in production? You have to gather all that oil. You have to process it, separate the water and the sand and, and the um, condensates and everything else, and then you have to deliver it somewhere, right? You can't just sit on the ocean floor. We talked last time about how Chevron has a subsea pipeline in the Gulf of Mexico that they were really smart, and they rent usage of it to other oil companies so they can get their oil from the subsea environment to back to shore. 
So this is a conference that's all about that, not actually drilling subsea, but actually what happens when you go into production. You know, how do you process those those crudes and natural gases, and how do you move it where you need to move it? Perfect. And it looks like that's a, that's a one day. And then on Wednesday, we have the Winset Networking Lunch, which, um, which, which we apparently must attend. So what it's about. Yeah, everybody that can attend this should attend this. So Marion Winson, who started this, um, hats off to him. He has started and successfully sold, I think, five or six oil field service companies. He's in his 90s. He's a sweetheart of a guy. He knows the industry backwards and forwards, upside down. Um, he started this unofficially. It was just a group of friends, and it, it grew over the years and years. And now you can get to now, there's like 50 people show up for this. You buy your own food. And it's a chance for you to network. It's a chance if you're looking to hire people. It's a chance for you to scout you know, talent. If you're looking for a job, um, you can actually go out and, and help people help you find a job. I actually picked up a client there. So it's, just, it's, a, it's, it's a grassroots networking event for oil and gas people here in Houston. And Mr. Winsett, being in his 90s, texts message, uses text messages. So yeah, I love that. He's, he's the only person that age I know that even knows how to text, and he uses it all the time. I think that's really cool. That's awesome. All right, so those are our events, all of our stories. We will, uh, we will put this all in the show notes for anybody that wants to read uh, you know, The Onion or, or any of the other stories. And then we'll just be back next week for more of this. So take us out of here, Mark. All right, folks, do great work. Pay it forward. We will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. It's too bad my friend Chad's brother wasn't there because he totally knows Tai Chi and stuff.